Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. So uh, let's go ahead and have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're ready to study the Word this evening. We have a lot to cover tonight. One thing I wanted to cover tonight, I'm going to postpone till next Tuesday. There's a lot of interesting things going on in the Middle East, and I was going to give an Israel report, but I have other things to do tonight, so other extraneous reports to give. So we'll do that and then uh, get into the Word. So we'll ha- let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word and to focus on what the Lord has to teach us through His Word this evening And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can fellowship together, and that we have the common beliefs that we have, and that on the basis of that, we have a special fellowship, special fellowship because of our salvation. Father, we continue to pray for those who are not here, that there are several who are fighting various kinds of illnesses, flu, strep throat, whatever. We pray that they would be able to recover and be with us soon. Father, also reminded to pray for Jim Myers as he is still uh, trying to recover from uh, a bout with a uh, bad cold, and he's got a lot coming up as he will be coming here to the States in about two weeks, and then going down to Brazil for a couple of weeks, so we pray for him. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that we can put aside the distractions and we can focus on what uh, the Holy Spirit has to teach us and that we can be strengthened and encouraged by our study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the other night I gave a report on what I did in Ukraine, and tonight I want to uh, show some of the pictures from the uh, Ukraine trip. As I pointed out, we had, um, uh, when I went this time, I had a chance to meet and get uh, uh, introduced to a lot of things that were going on in the Jewish community there. The two basic organizations that I met with were the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Joint Distribution Committee. I don't know how well you can see these slides. These slides, I don't know why we can't get things brighter. Pictures look great on my computer, and I come down here, and they're dark. No, they shouldn't be dark. That's a, uh, did, did we change the settings on the projectors or something has to happen there? That shows up a little better. Uh, the young lady who is quite short there uh, it was the director of public relations for the Hesed Center there in uh, Kiev, and she's the one who gave Jim and me a tour of the facility, And we got to see uh, a lot of the different things that were going on there. And each department had uh, the head explain to us what they were doing. And and this man was the one who was uh, put together a choir. And they were singing a lot of uh, uh, Jewish songs and uh, enjoying themselves, sitting around playing chess and a number of other things. They also supply medical, give medical supplies for people who are in uh, need of those various things, and they have various different kinds of arts and crafts things that function in a way as as therapy. 
And one of the things they do is they give art classes and painting classes to people who have never drawn anything in their life. And then they display their works on the wall, which are uh, quite interesting. These were all drawn by uh, people there who have absolutely no background, never had any training, never drawn anything before uh, in their life. And they made a couple of these available to Jim and me. They were very kind, very gracious, and offered us we could have anything that we, any picture that we wanted. And overall, the people that were there were very, uh, very warm, very open, very glad to, uh, uh, to show us everything that they were doing. And then the next day, I went over to the Jewish Agency for Israel. This is their seal in the outer courtyard. It's the, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's the Sachnut, which is what, what they have, it's written in Cyrillic there at the bottom, the Sachnut Ukraina. It's the Jewish Agency for Israel. And out in the courtyard, they also have this, uh, lower metal, uh, rendition of the, co- of the Kotel, which is the western wall in, in, uh, Jerusalem. And then they have a menorah. Uh, in the uh, in this outer courtyard as well, which is uh, has various decorations to remind them of of Jerusalem. Went inside to their main conference room where they have a large map of Ukraine on the wall, and all of the little blue buttons uh, indicate different centers that they have throughout the country of Ukraine for ministering to uh, the Jewish people in Ukraine. One of the most significant aspects of what they do is with young people, uh, teaching young people about their Jewish history, their Jewish culture, and they have summer camps for them during the summer, and they also give them an opportunity to finish their high school education by going to Israel. And many of them will go to Israel for two or three years to finish high school, and then when, once they finish high school, many of them stay in Israel. And these were the two uh, leaders of the uh, Saknut, Idan uh, uh, Pesachovich on the right, and I can't remember the uh, lady's name on the left. She's the one who's in charge of the uh, education aspect of the uh, of the Jaffe program there, and he's in charge of the Aliyah, or the immigration side of their work. And then, of course, I thought I would throw in just a couple of pictures here. Of Kiev, this is the main street on the left, the main street uh, in uh, downtown Kiev called Krishatik. And um, this is the old uh, Tsum, which was the big department store they had under the Soviet period. And then the uh, picture on the right, this is a titanium statue that the uh, Soviets had built just prior to the breakup of the Soviet Union. And this is affectionately referred to by Americans as the Metal Mama the statue to the Russian motherland. And then I had a wonderful opportunity to get a picture in during the one of the six hours of sunshine and blue sky I had during the two weeks I was there. Most of the time it was overcast, gray, gloomy, and drizzly, misty. This is a picture of the congregation uh, when they were uh, sing- singing at, uh, at Jim's church. And you can see that, there, as I pointed out the other night, a number of them are in their 20s or 30s, has a good group of, of young people, and also has uh, children who are uh, have a little children's choir, and they were 
they were singing and giving a little narration of the Christmas story in Russian. You can't hear, understand Russian, so there's no need for you to hear the sound. And then this was their choir that was singing. They're meeting now at the Bratislava uh, Hotel, so I thought I would show you the external picture. Again, this, that's, that Sunday morning, the, the other picture and this picture were taken that morning. By the time we got out of church, it was gray and gloomy again, uh, just about like this. This is how it was the whole, the whole trip. Now, this is a picture. The metal mom is just off to the left. This is the bell tower at the Lavra, which is the uh, mon- uh, uh, Russian Orthodox monastery there that was founded in about the 10th century, which is the founding of what it was referred to as Kievan Rus. And you can see the gold domes of the various churches that surround the, uh, uh, the monastery. I think that is the last picture it is. Okay, let me get out of that. Switch slideshows. And now we are in Romans. So you can turn the lights on, Jack. Thank you. And let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, just so we have a little review, we can pick up some context. And in this section of, of Romans, the apostle is telling the Believers in the church in Rome, of his care and concern for them, this was a church where he had never been. It was well established before he arrived uh, arrived there, and he is, uh, and this is the only church that he wrote a, a letter to, the Colossian church on Sunday morning. He had never had direct personal contact, but it was founded or established by those he had trained in Ephesus, whereas he had no contact whatsoever with the Roman church, it is believed that the Roman church was probably founded by um, uh, Jews who had gone to uh, Jerusalem and were there on the day of Pentecost and then returned back to Rome uh, with the gospel. Uh, if that was not the time in which it was founded, it was not long uh, after. It was not founded by Peter. It was not founded by Paul. And so this is Rome is the only church that he had a ministry to uh, that when he arrived, the church was already established, and he had had no real connection with the church in its uh, in its past or in its uh, establishment. And so, the first part of this uh, section, uh, he from eight down through fifteen, he is explaining his concern for those in the church in Rome, uh, what he has heard about them. He, like as he does in many of his epistles, he begins by reminding them of his, the many times he prays for them and the frequency of his prayers for them and what he is praying about when he prays for them. So there are lessons there for us in terms of what we, what are the contents of our prayer should be. And then beginning in verse 16 and 17, which is sandwiched between this part of the introduction and the first section of the uh, of the epistle in verse 18, we have the statement of the basic thesis of Romans, which has to do with the Christian life. It's not just about the uh, 
fundamental aspects of the work of Christ and the the strict gospel per se in terms of justification, but it is oriented towards how justified believers are supposed to live. So last time we began by just looking at these first uh, couple of verses. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So they had, as I pointed out, they had a reputation. And here he is talking about faith not in the sense of what they believe, but in terms of their application of what they believe in the city of Rome, that because Rome was the center of the empire, because Rome is where everything emanated from, uh, they were, many travelers came to Rome, many believers came to Rome, met with that congregation, and then returned home uh, talking about the dynamics of the church in Rome. So obviously they were a maturing congregation and they had a reputation that was already spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So he says that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, and within Roman idiom at the time, whole world basically means the Roman Empire. It does not mean everything in the globe. It is They are just speaking of everything within the Roman Empire itself. And then in verse 9, Paul says, for God is my witness. And he begins this with this uh, word for, in the Greek it's gar, which usually indicates an explanation. Frequently in, um, in Paul's writings, it, and we'll see this a little later on when we get down to uh, verse uh, 17, uh, 16 and 17, it introduces Old Testament quotes. But here it, it is indicating a uh, an explanation in terms of his desire to come to Rome. And it indicates an, ex, an expansion of something he has already said, but for usually does not introduce a brand new topic. Now it's important to understand uh, some of those aspects of words like this because it just helps us to understand uh, the flow of what Paul is saying. So first of all, he expresses his gratitude to God for them and for the reputation as it is spreading. And then he states, for God is my witness. And the use of the word gar here, or the English translation for, indicates a connection, a link between uh, what he is saying in verses 9 through 15 in terms of his his desire to go to Rome and his gratitude to God and prayer of thanksgiving in verse 8. So the verse 9 and following expand, are really an expansion, it must be understood as an expansion on his gratitude for this congregation and his desire uh, to to minister to them and to come to them. So he says, for God is my witness, uh, indicating that he wants, he takes this very seriously. This is not just some idiom. It's not just some uh, slang term. Uh, it became that later on in language because people would imitate uh, what was in the scripture. But this is the origin of these phrases. And so he is making it a very serious statement here uh, about God and his relationship to him. For God is my witness whom I serve 
with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, this is the uh, first use of the word gospel here, and we're going to see its use in again in verse 15 and uh, where we have the verb form and then the noun again in verse 16 that the gospel, uh, he's, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So I will reserve a de- discussion of what he means by the gospel until we get down to verse 16. But just as summary, so uh, you know what he's talking about here. He's not limiting the word gospel to just the message of justification. It's very important to understand that in the New Testament you have a narrow use of the word gospel and a broad use of the word gospel. And the narrow use of the word gospel is what we're more used to. Did so-and-so get the gospel right? Uh, You go to a funeral and you say, well, I just wish that pastor had given the gospel a little more clearly. And what we mean is that the gospel is the message of justification or how to be uh, saved so that your eternal destiny is heaven rather than the lake of fire. The broader sense of the word gospel includes all of the implications of the abundant life, the full life that is promised to the person who accepts Jesus as the Messiah, not just eternal life in terms of life without end, but a full, abundant life in terms of the quality and all of the dimensions there are to our life on earth. So the gospel, in this broad sense, includes what we often talk about as phase one, phase two, phase three, three different ways in which the Bible uh, talks about the uh, salvation in reference to the believer, that phase one is saved from the penalty of sin. This is justification. Phase two is being saved from the uh, power of sin. This is the Christian life, otherwise referred to theologically as sanctification. And phase three is being saved from the uh, presence of sin when we are absent from the body face to face with the Lord, which is referred to as glorification. So when Paul talks about the gospel here, he's not talking about that which relates only to phase one or the justification message, but he is talking about the entire uh, message, the full message that relates to phase one, phase two, and phase three. And that is what will be covered in the uh, uh, whole of Romans. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. That is in the, uh, he's talking about that immaterial part of his nature that allows his soul to relate to God. We are comprised, uh, the human being is comprised of two components, an immaterial component and a material component. The material component is our body. The immaterial component is referred to as under a lot of different terms, which means they, they all come together and fit together, which we describe under the term soul. But the soul in and of itself is not able to relate to God. When Adam was originally created, the soul also was combined with something else that is sometimes referred to as spirit. And uh, you have phrases like the natural man, which in 1 Corinthians 2.14, 
which is the word sukikas from suke meaning soul, and that describes the soulish man. And the soulish man in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 is contrasted with the spiritual man, and that indicates that there's something the spiritual man has that the natural man, the unbeliever, the soulish man, does not have. In Jude 19, it uses the word sukikas as well. In the New American Standard, you have a horrible translation. It translates sukikas as worldly. In other translations, it will use the word natural or some other uh, word that really doesn't communicate the essence of what Sukika says. And then there's an appositional phrase says the, the natural man not having spirit. And every English translation and commentary assumes that the pneuma, use of pneuma there means Holy Spirit. And I keep asking people, why is that? There's nothing in the context of Jude uh, to indicate uh, that the only difference between the believer and the unbeliever is the Holy Spirit. They just jump to that conclusion. You have the same problem in 1 Corinthians 2. We will hear a lot more about that one night at the conference. The, um, so there's the distinction that is made in Scripture between the unbeliever and the believer is that the believer has something that is given birth to when he trusts Jesus as Savior. That's what's called regeneration or being born again. Something that wasn't there is now there. And that new immaterial component that is there allows the consciousness, the self-consciousness of the individual to be conscious of a relationship with God allows the mentality of the believer to understand the things of God allows his volition to be oriented toward the things of God and so this and his conscience to be informed by the uh, categories of right and wrong as established in the scripture Uh, that immaterial component that correlates those different elements of the soul is known as the spirit or the human spirit. Now, when you, the problem that we have in Scripture is that the word pneuma for spirit and suke for soul are sometimes used in non-technical ways where they are synonymous. You get, go back to the Old Testament and you talk about uh, the spirit of Pharaoh in Genesis. That doesn't mean that Pharaoh was saved. It just is talking about his thinking, his attitude, his uh, mental attitude. Uh, So spirit there is used in a non-technical way. And as a matter of fact, in passages like 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 16, pneuma, which is the word that is usually translated spirit, has at least three and I think four distinct meanings within a, the course of three verses. And, it, and if you look up the word pneuma in any Greek dictionary, it can mean breath, wind, the immaterial part of man is a general term. It can be a synonym for the soul. It can refer to something that is distinct from the soul. Uh, it can refer to an attitude, the thinking part of an individual uh, it has a lot of different nuances or shades of meaning, and you have to look at the context in order to understand what these shades of meaning are. And sometimes, like in 1 Corinthians 2, 
it's not the easiest to dissect these things, and so I think a lot of commentators just jump to a conclusion that most of them are referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the majority of them are, but not quite as many as some people think. So that just takes a lot of careful thought and careful analysis. So when Paul says that he is serving God with my spirit, this is what he is talking about is it's not his spirit in distinction from his soul because they are closely intertwined. It is the spirit that enables all of the components of the soul to serve God, to understand God, and to uh, fulfill our spiritual life and spiritual destiny. So uh, he is serving, when he says, I serve God with my spirit, he's emphasizing uh, the completedness of his regenerate nature, and only then can are we able to truly uh, serve God. Uh, this service is uh, in the gospel of his son, and he goes on to say, without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. And this is one thing that we have to I think all of us need to pay a lot more attention to, and that is the consistency and the frequency of our prayer life. This is not something that is a suggestion in the Scriptures. This is a mandate. We are, as First Thessalonians 5, uh, 17 says, we are to pray without ceasing. That means this is to be a continual thing in our life, and prayer really does uh, make a difference. James says, we have not because we ask not. Too often we succumb to the, uh, to the, uh, strain of fatalism in our culture that things will just work out the way they're going to work out and God's will will be done and so we justify it that way and we move on and we just don't take time for prayer. And Paul talks about the fact that he makes mention of them always in his prayers. He consistently prays for them, um, making requests if by some means now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And this is what he is emphasizing in this section from verse 10 down through verse 15. His desire, his deep, profound desire to come to Rome and to have a ministry among these believers in Rome. Notice I didn't say a church. I don't think it's a single church. The word church, ecclesia, has not been mentioned yet. He just wants to come to the, those believers in Rome and to have a ministry with them. And so he begins here by listing in verse 11 the first of three reasons for his coming to Rome. The first reason Stated in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Now, this is an odd way of stating this because Paul isn't saying, isn't using the phrase spiritual gift like he uses it in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 or as he will use it in, in Romans chapter 12 or in a couple of other passages where he's referring to one of those special enablements that God the Holy Spirit gives every believer at the instant of salvation. We have spiritual gifts related to leadership in the church, communication gifts, the spiritual gift of apostle, the spiritual gift of prophet, spiritual gift of pastor, uh, teacher, and spiritual gift of evangelist. Now, 
The first two, the apostle and the prophet, were only active in the first century of the church, in the early stages of the church, and they are referred to in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 4, as the foundation of the church. That's not in Ephesians 4, 4, that's in Ephesians uh, 2, 24, I think, 2:24. that they are the foundation of the church. So once the foundation's laid, you move on. You don't need to rebuild or reestablish that foundation. And it was the apostles and prophets of the early church that provided a check or a quality control on people who claim to be giving divine revelation, people who walk around and say, well, God spoke to me and said to do X, Y, or Z. There needed to be some sort of quality control on that so that not everybody could get away with saying that God spoke to them when indeed he wasn't. And so uh, that was that quality control and that check was provided by the apostles and prophets. Once they were off the scene, there was no longer a... Um, going to be special revelation because there is no longer a quality control officer in the church. Once they were gone, there's no instruction in any of the epistles on how to uh, verify or validate uh, divine revelation. So these spirit, those were leadership and communication spiritual gifts. Then you had other spiritual gifts related to leadership, such as administration and service, and this is usually found in those who serve as deacons and many others in the local church. You had gifts of helps and mercy, uh, gifts of other gifts of service that can cover a wide variety of manifestations. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Even though he uses the same word, he uses the word charisma, which is from the Greek word charis, meaning grace, that is a gracious bestowal of something. And then he, that's the word for gift. The word for spiritual is the word pneumatikos, which is the same word that's used for the spiritual man in 1 Corinthians 2.14 as opposed to the natural man. But it, as an adjective, it also is used in passages like 1 Corinthians 2.14, uh, to, I mean 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 to talk about these spiritual endowments. But that doesn't make sense here. Paul is not the one to impart spiritual gifts. It is the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual gifts at the instant of salvation. What Paul is talking about here is to impart to them something from his spiritual gift, which will provide edification and spiritual blessing for those in Rome, that it will be the basis on which they will be able to uh, they will be able to grow. So it should be understood to mean something like, I long to see you, that I may impart to you something from my spiritual gift to you so that you uh, may be established. And this is the best way to understand this, um, the use of this particular, uh, this particular term. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, gives us the second reason why he wants to come to Rome. He says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, this is a really important verse. This is one of those verses that people just run right past. But there is something important here. This is the Apostle Paul who is saying that one of the reasons he wants to come to this congregation 
It's not so that he can teach them, but that they can encourage him. Within the body of Christ, we have a mutual ministry. This is part of the reason we have spiritual gifts, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are members of one another. There's a mutuality in ministry. You have, uh, and we've gone through the doctrine of the one another's many times, you have all of these different challenges or exhortations to believers that we are to love one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to edify one another. We are to pray for one another. All of these different ministries that we are to do to one another, there is a mutuality of ministry, a back and forth that takes place within the body of Christ. And so Paul tells them, not only does he want to come to teach them from his spiritual gift of apostle, but also that in watching and observing how they are growing, how God is working in their life, how they are ministering to others within the body of Christ, how they are taking the gospel outside of the body of Christ to those who have not heard the gospel, he will be encouraged by that. So he says that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So he will encourage them, they will encourage him. Now this is very similar to what we read in uh, Hebrews 10.25. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer of Hebrews says that we're not to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day referring to the day of uh, judgment for the church, the end of the church age, which comes at the rapture of the church, when the church is raptured and taken to uh, be with the Lord in the air, and then after that the judgment seat of Christ takes place. So until then, we are to continue to... Uh, exhort one another, challenge, encourage one another. The word in Hebrews 10.25 is parakaleo, which is the verb form of the noun that is used to describe the ministry of God the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to function like the Holy Spirit in everybody else's Christian life. It has the idea of being an encouragement to one another. The word that's used in Romans 12 just adds the uh, prefix the prep- from the preposition soon, uh, which the N coming before a P changes to an M. Uh, soon parakaleo means to encourage together. So that is how it is translated. Now, Roman, I mean, Hebrews 10.25 says that we are to be encouraging one another. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we encourage each other. There are superficial ways that Christians try to encourage one another, which you find in a certain number of churches. And then there are are, uh, more substantive ways in which we encourage one another. One way that we encourage one another is as we get to know other believers and we learn how God is working in their life. I see this happen all the time in this congregation. I've been back here and pastoring this congregation for uh, six years and a little over a month, and the congregation will celebrate its seventh anniversary this coming April. And there are a lot of people in this congregation who did not know each other before they came to this church. 
And a lot of people in this congregation were together in a previous congregation. And because that was a much larger church, they didn't necessarily even see some of, some of the other people that are here. And there are people that are in this congregation who sat behind other people who are in this congregation and didn't even know their name until they came over to this church. And I see a lot of people smiling right now because you know, you know these stories and people say, wow, I sat in front of you for years and didn't even know your name. And now you're working together in the kitchen or you're working in the nursery or you're doing different things together. And you've gotten to know other believers. And I see this happen again and again where people get together, for example, in preparation for the Chafer Conference and they're doing things together and they get to know something about the story and the life of the other person, find out how they came to Houston, uh, how they originally heard about in-depth Bible teaching and study of doctrine. And, and they, they share these stories and it encourages each other because you find out you're not alone. That's one of the things we're trying to do with uh, among a lot of the doctrinal churches this summer is having a summer camp up in uh, Colorado so and inviting teenagers from all the different doctrinal churches around so that these kids can get together because just like at our congregation, even though we have uh, between 110 and 150 members in this church or people who regularly attend this church, we only have a handful of uh, teenagers. And that is pretty much the pattern uh, through lots of churches. Some churches are a little larger than ours, and they may have twice as many kids. Some are smaller than ours. They don't have but one or two kids. And these kids feel so isolated. Nobody else believes what we believe. I'm all alone. You remember what it was like when you were an adolescent and you felt like you were anything you did that was different from everybody else made you stand out. Well, that's true for a lot of a lot of teenagers and Something like this will allow these kids to realize that there are many, many other teenagers and people around the country who believe the same things that we believe and teach the same things that we believe, and that is an encouragement for them. It helps them. It's not their basis for their Christian life, but Paul's not saying it's the basis for our spiritual life. He's saying it is an encouragement. It is uh, it helps us to recognize that we're not just out there all by ourselves, all alone, trying to fight this battle, that there's really a team, and we're part of the team, and the team's called the body of Christ, and we are to encourage one another. It's an encouragement to come to Bible class and see uh, 50 or 60 people at Bible class rather than five or ten. I've been to uh, churches where you show up for a service and four people showed up. That's not very encouraging, especially when you know that maybe that morning you had a hundred people at church and then four showed up at night. That doesn't encourage you a whole lot. Uh, There can be a lot of different explanations for that, um, but those kinds of things happen. But you show up at a church on Tuesday night or Wednesday night, and there's 200 or 300 people there, that creates an energy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been to congregations where the middle of the week, it was still, you had to get there 30 minutes early just to find an empty seat. And that was encouraging. You felt like you were part of something. There was a dynamic that was going on there. You've also been to churches where on Wednesday night there were five people there. Now, you know the doctrine that it doesn't matter how many people are there, and it doesn't. But it 
inspires us. It strengthens us. It's encouraging to know that there are other people who want the same things we want, that believe the same things we believe, and recognize the importance of learning the Word of God. And it's encouraging to a pastor. I've been in lots of different circumstances. I've stood up in front of five people on an evening service. I've stood up in front of uh, 800 or 1,000 people in a service. And the energy that you get when you're in front of a 1,000 people is completely different than the energy you get when you're in front of five people. And it makes a, and I'm always surprised at the difference that it makes even on just the way you uh, present your material. So it can be the same material, but there's just a, a dynamic that takes place that is uh, very interesting to observe. And the same thing is true when you, if you've ever been in um, anything dramatic and you've been in the theater, if you're playing to a house and it's only a third full, then you just don't have the energy from the players on the stage that you do when it's, the house is com- completely packed. And so these things do make a difference. It has to do with encouragement. But we want to make sure that the encouragement that's there is based on the solid foundation of the truth of the Word of God and not based on something that is trivial or superficial or, uh, or shallow. And too often that's uh, what, the, what the case is because uh, it's easier for a lot of people to be shallow and superficial than it is to be, have real, uh, a real substantive, solid spiritual life based on a study of the Word. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. The encouragement comes by the mutual faith that is shared. And here it relates to, once again, the application of doctrine. It doesn't leave the doctrine out. But it, it includes that. It's all packaged within the word, the mutual faith. It's what is believed and what is practiced on the basis of what is believed. It incorporates the totality of Christian belief and application. So Paul says that I may be encouraged uh, together with you. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that it's important to be encouraged because the Apostle Paul himself said it will be good to be encouraged by you. So um, we have to understand the importance of that. And it's not just walking up to somebody and saying, I want to encourage you. It's not just um, uh, mouthing little uh, Christian um, trite sayings, which there's too many of. Uh, it really happens within the context, as, as I observe it, within the context of people building relationships and getting to know each other within a congregation. You can't get to know everybody at that level. You get to know three or four other believers in a local congregation at a level of any depth. And as you get to know them and you see their struggles and their challenges and how God works in their life and how they're applying doctrine, that gives you ideas. They see the same thing in you. That gives them ideas, encourages them, because they know that they're, they're not going through these things in their life all by themselves. So then we come to verse 13. And in verse 13, he adds a new element. He says, now I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, how many times I, I plan to come to you, how often I plan to come to you, but was hindered until now. So he had a desire to do something, but God was not ready for him to do it. 
Now, this is an interesting doctrine I've always wanted to develop, and that is the doctrine of our desire to do the right thing, but God doesn't let us. We may desire to, uh, as the Apostle Paul did, he wanted, on his second missionary journey, he wanted to take the gospel into the uh, Roman province of Asia in western Turkey. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to have any ministry here at all at this time. It's going to be later on. So it was a matter of timing. Same kind of situation here. Paul had tried to go to Rome several times, but there was always something that prevented him because the time wasn't right. God was providing the guidance. God didn't come out of the heavens and say, Paul, don't go now. He just, through the arrangement of various circumstances, made it uh, impossible for the Apostle Paul to make the journey when he wanted to. That's how God works in divine guidance a lot. God, you don't open your Bible like some people do and say, God's going to lead me to do something, and they point to a verse, and then they read it, and it has something totally uh, irrelevant to say about whatever the question is, and somehow they try to make it fit. Uh, that's not how you go about divine guidance. You don't go about divine guidance by going off into uh, some private place to pray and uh, adopt some Eastern mysti- mystical mentality and wait for the Holy Spirit to give you a vibration so you know which way to move. Uh, that's mysticism, and there's no place of mysticism in the Scripture. The Scripture says that God, if you trust God, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge Him, He will direct your paths. That doesn't mean He's going to tell you, turn left, turn right, go straight, but when you get done and you look back, you'll see just how God guided you through all those decisions and took you exactly where he wanted you to go. Too many Christians, especially young ones, get all upset about, oh, what job should I take? What city should I go to? Who should I marry? How many children should I have? Should I have children? They just get consumed with every little decision thinking that God has one specific thing for them to do. God's told you what he wants you to do. Do in his word. He wants you to grow to spiritual maturity when you'll develop wisdom, and from that wealth of wisdom from the word of God that's in your soul, you will be able to make wise decisions in all of these particular areas. But God's not going to short-circuit the process by giving you the answers to the exam uh, before you get a chance to do the studying to answer the questions on your own. So in verse 13, Paul says, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also. Now, this is an important word to understand, because there's too many people who think that they've been hired by the Holy Spirit to be fruit inspectors and to go around and try to determine who's saved and who's not. And that if you don't have fruit, by which they mean something observable and quantifiable in your life, then you probably weren't saved. And there are a tremendous amount of people who have views related to that. And the term that is used for this type of theology is called lordship salvation. The reason it got that name was in the early years of uh, this, or 
early to midpoint of the 20th century, there was an emphasis on the gospel, meaning not just believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you also had to make him Lord of your life, uh, by which they meant you had to uh, commit to his total authority over your life at the same time that you believed in him or you weren't really saved. And the way to tell if you were really saved was to evaluate the fruit in your life. And if you didn't have the right kind of fruit, then you weren't saved. And then they would always quote a verse out of context and say, See, by their fruits you will know them. See, I look at your life and you don't have... You haven't led 50 people to the Lord in the last year. You haven't led 50 people to the Lord in the last 10 years. You haven't led 50 people to the Lord your whole life. You're not saved. So they set up these artificial standards to try to qualify and quantify fruit and then impose that on people and say that 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 is how you're going to tell if you're actually saved. There's only one way to know if you're saved, and that is if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're resting in him and him alone, trusting in him and him alone for salvation, then you're saved. That is the promise of God. Our assurance is based on the promise of God in his character, not on your character. And the problem with lordship salvation is it puts the focal point of your assurance on your character and not on the character of God and the work of Christ on the cross. So it's important to understand this concept of spiritual fruit. The first way in which spiritual fruit is used is in passages such as uh, John 15:2 and Galatians 5:22 and 23. John 15, Jesus said, "I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit." The interesting thing is we live in a world today that is so divorced from agriculture, I just wish people, Christians just need to start growing patio tomatoes and they'll learn a lot about the Christian life. Uh, it takes a long time before a plant produces fruit. Fruit is not a term that is equivalent to spiritual growth, except in a couple, maybe a couple of passages. Generally, fruit is something that is the product of a maturing plant. You take a seed and you plant the seed in the soil and you water it. When it germinates and there's life there, that's equivalent to regeneration or being born again. But then you have to continue to fertilize it, which is like feeding it the Word of God and giving water uh, like the Holy Spirit between the, the nutrients in the soil and the water. Then that little bit of green that comes out of the seed begins to grow and if it's a tomato plant, it takes 60 to 90 days before it can bear fruit. If In some other cases, if it's an oak tree, it takes several years before it can produce acorns, which is the fruit of the oak tree. So there's a lot of spiritual growth that has to take place before fruit is ever observed. Uh, it is only the maturing plant that ever produces fruit. Fruit is also used to describe praise to God. Hebrews 13:15 says that the fruit of our lips is praise to God. So that's not just saying praise God or praise Jesus. That is actually saying something a little more substantive. It's describing exactly what God has done and how he has done it. It doesn't need to be lengthy, but it's not just repeating the phrase uh, praise God. 
Uh, third, and we might as well look at this passage, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Their parallel passages say pretty much the same thing, where the fruit is, descri- is talking about the fruit of the false teachers. And it's not talking about their lifestyle. It's not talking about their morality. It's talking about their the content of what they are teaching. Look at Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse. we'll start at verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. I had a question on this from one of the students when I was in Kiev over uh, uh, teaching the class over there. Um, it's probably a question that he asks every one of the guys that comes over there to teach. And he was honing in on... Um, Verses 19 and 20, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I was teaching on judgment and rewards and started off talking about uh, the lake of fire and that not every time you read the word fire does it refer to the lake of fire. Neither does every time you read the word baptism refer to water baptism or the word water indicate baptism. But people see a word and they do a little Rorschach exegesis and they jump to a conclusion and immediately assume that because Jesus talks about throwing something into the fire, that that's the lake of fire. Um, That's just part of the analogy. So he starts off in verse 15 by talking about false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets. Now, the context here is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is challenging the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic Law. And that includes their uh, various claims to being uh, the true prophets of Israel. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So immediately he's using a descriptive metaphor to indicate that on the outside they're going to look one way. They look good on the outside, but behind the camouflage they are something else. So how do you discern if they are uh, wolves or sheep? Verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Now, a lot of people come along and say, oh, well, that must mean their lifestyle. It must mean their morality. It doesn't mean that at all. Let's just keep reading. He then gives another agricultural analogy. If you don't understand growing things, you can never understand the Bible. Uh, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. He's still talking about the analogy. He's not, he hasn't crossed the line into talking about the reality yet. He's just talking about the analogy. He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Now he shifts, he's shifted from animals to, from zoology to Botany and dendrology. He's talking about trees and not animals. But a a bad tree is equivalent to a wolf in sheep's clothing. A good tree is a sheep, equivalently. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor a bad tree bear good fruit. What is the fruit of a prophet? It's his message. Now, what's Jesus doing in context here? This ought to be Christian Life 101. What, what is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? I just told you. He is giving the divine interpretation of the Mosaic Law in contrast to the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic Law. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic Law. Where does it talk about false prophets in the Mosaic Law? Two places you have a test on a prophet. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13, if a, if a uh, healer, a miracle worker, a dreamer of dreams comes and, and performs a miracle and it actually occurs, don't believe his message. Don't believe that he came from God. See, even in the example that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 13, he doesn't challenge whether or not it's a pseudo-miracle or a false dream. He's going to, he said, okay, we're going to assume for the sake of argument that he actually heals people, that he actually has dreams that predict the future. That doesn't mean anything. What's important is not the miracle. What's important is the message. If he then says, let us go after other gods, that message contradicts the message you heard from God on Mount Sinai. Therefore, he is a false prophet, not because uh, he, he doesn't, didn't seem to have credentials, but because his message was a false message. And so that's how you identify a false prophet, by a false message. A false message is bad fruit. So he's not talking about lifestyle here. He's talking about message. By their fruits, by their message, you will know them. What Jesus says in, in Matthew seven fifteen to 20 is this exact same thing that Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 13. The way to validate a prophet is by one way is by his message. It has to, it has to be consistent with everything else that has been accepted as the revealed word of God. So we have the teaching of false teachers is referred to as fruit. Then fourth, it's used in Romans 1.13, our passage, for general spiritual edification. And some of the passages that you can go to for uh, character quality that's developed over time in the life of the believers, Galatians 5.22 to 23, I'm still trying to figure out how one quantifies or measures uh, patience or self-control, but that's just a personal issue. A few people are chuckling. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Again, it's character. Philippians 1, 10, and 11. Uh, verse 11 says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That is experiential righteousness in the life of the believer who is walking by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Philippians 4, 16 through 18, it talks about uh, the spiritual maturity. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, that is the financial gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account, that is the spiritual growth that has occurred which the giving of the gift is just an indication of. Now, we don't have time to get into the next part, 
which is where we get start getting into the next use of that term gospel there. It's the verb in verse 15. But just to give you a, a preview of coming attractions, uh, verses 14 and 15 sets up his uh, statement in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, not justification. This is uh, a full use. He never uses salvation as equivalent to justification in the book of Romans. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And then Romans 1.17 is the fun part. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. It's a quote from the Old Testament. So what are we going to need to do before we understand that? We got four uses, four ways, you were here Tuesday night, four ways in which the old, the New Testament writers understand the Old Testament and quote the Old Testament. So we've got to figure that out. So we're going to be going both Tuesday night and Thursday night, we're going to be reviewing that same material because it is so crucial to understanding what is going on because so many Christians today think that every time you have a quote from the Old Testament, they're using it either A, in the same way the author in the Old Testament used it the first time, or that whenever it says such and such is fulfilled, that it always means the type of literal fulfillment we have in the use of passages like Micah 5.2 and um, uh, Matthew uh, Matthew 2.0 that Jesus would be, or the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and then Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but there are other ways in which fulfillment terminology is used. So this use of Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17 is probably one of the top ten most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. So we'll get there probably next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have to uh, look at these things this evening and to get into uh, uh, these important topics that we might learn what it means to really uh, encourage one another, that we might also learn what it means to encourage one another in the faith and understanding what that faith really is. Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these things in our life that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We would see how to apply these things in our own thinking, in our own uh, own lives, uh, that you may be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.